You're listening to the Maniverse Podcast with your host, Tom Traplin, and this is session number 68. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Maniverse Podcast. I am your host, Tom Traplin, and this is the podcast where we talk about building successful and profitable game businesses. I have a very special guest with me today. Nate Peterson is the owner of Backstage Hobbies and Games, West Michigan's premier vintage video game, board game, and trading card game store. But this episode isn't just a feature on Nate's game store in Michigan. Nate is also the director of retail operations at Ion Retail, which some of you may know as ImpPOS. Ion Retail is a software and subscription service for game store owners to manage their brick and mortar operations with online e-commerce outlets. And today we're going to dive into what makes Ion Retail unique and why you should consider it for your game business. And we'll also go into the, story, the backstory of Backstage Hobbies and Games. So Nate, thanks for coming on the show. Good morning. How are we doing, sir? We're doing fantastic. How about you? Awake and operational. Can't ask for more than that this early in the morning. So are you ready to, ready to have a chat? Let's do this. Cool. Let's start off with a fun question. What All excites right. you about working in the game business? Shoot, you know, actually, um, there's not any one thing to speak of. Uh, it's pretty much a ball of everything. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say it's just boring all the way through. <laughs> there's no fun at all. Well, I, I end up in a kind of a pretty unique position, too. Um, I got started in the game industry as an independent publisher out of high school. Okay. I did, yeah. Um, I don't talk about that a whole lot these days because I just don't have the time to really do much of anything with it. But I started out doing some uh, kind of indie RPG stuff, mm -hmm. um, exhibited at Gen Con for a number of years as a small press publisher, um, worked with groups on uh, the Forge indie RPGs, uh, on sold on RPG Now uh, when that was kind of the big mm -hmm. brand for it. It's OBS, one bookshelf now. Um, you know, so when the opportunity came up to open the store about 10 years ago, I was already pretty well immersed in one end of the industry and it was pretty easy to dip the toes in the other half. You know, I'd spoken with a lot of game store owners. I'd spoken with a lot of retailers. I'd spoken with a lot of professionals. So I was like, no, I, I think I can do this. And that's kind of where we got the ball rolling there. And so very cool to kind of work the day to day then with the store has been a lot of fun. Um, being able to interact with different gamers, different players. Um, you know, and then kind of working the tech side now too, you know, it's, all over the place a little bit so there's all sorts of fun things to dive in <laughs> yeah very cool very cool and yeah i didn't know that about your uh, publishing history that's pretty neat hmm. it's very interesting that you started on the side of the business that most people don't experience right away and you came into the retail side that's pretty cool yeah. all right so well, you know, let's let's talk about that tell, tell us the story about how you ended up in this business like going to like you started off publishing yep. publishing small time yep. and then well, you um, rolled into the game store and then How's it gone from then? So you said 10 years. Well, the, uh, the game store was kind of amusing because we had, I'm in a very, very, very rural area. Um, okay. My town of Ludington here is a grand total of about 8,000 people in the city limits. We are the county seat. <laughs> okay. So we are, we are the big one in town. Uh, we're primarily a tourist town right on Lake Michigan. So we get a huge explosion in the population in the summer, and then it dies back between like the 1st of September and middle of May. Um, but at the time that I was doing the independent publishing, we had two gentlemen who were trying to do a game store, but they were also doing it literally in the sticks. Um, they were out about a good, ends up being about a good 15, 20 miles from Ludington itself. So they were on a stretch of freeway, um, kind of out running through some countryside kind of thing. Okay. And uh, 
so I was working with them to try to do events, to try to do things to publish, and, or not to publish, but to uh, promote my games, to promote my events and things like that. And I kept telling the guys, it's like, you really got to get downtown. You really got to get downtown. That's where the traffic is. That's where the people are. I've got people in town who are excited, who I've met personally, who just can't make it out these kind of events. And um, didn't really take me all that seriously. And a uh, friend of a friend had a building that they were renting downtown. And they had uh, the building kind of oddly partitioned. It was just an itty bitty space. And got talking with him. No, the landlords are looking to fill it. They're really great people. They want to do things for kind of the uh, youth and the young adults in the community. Um, talk to them. Okay, cool. Chatted them up, kind of gave them an idea of what I wanted to do. I had originally kind of opened to do something of a kind of a land center. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit more heavily video game focused at the time because we also had, like I said, we had the guys that were doing the game store yeah. routine already. And I figured, yeah, you know, I can do this. I can have an outlet to promote the stuff that I'm doing and I won't step on any toes and we won't have any problems. And very quickly, um, I had a lot of people come out of the woodwork in town who said, oh my goodness, we need this downtown. And so within probably about the first year, we shifted from that heavy video game presence into a heavier board game, card game presence just on the weight of the demand. Because a lot of these people, they weren't going out to that other place. Um, it was too far out of the way. It wasn't on anybody's daily route or daily path. Uh, they had to make special trips out there, and it was usually in the awkward hours. So I was like, okay, you know, I can do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that. And kind of over time, attrition just kind of had its way. They ended up closing their stores for various reasons, and we just kept kind of rolling into different areas to fill the niche. You know, so uh, our first location was probably a little under 900 square feet total. And, uh, Not terrible. It's not, not too bad. Not too bad. We ended up moving within the first year. A friend of the family found out that I was uh, doing a business downtown. Huh? She owned several properties and she said, oh, I've got this one that's uh, much closer to the avenue. And the way our downtown traffic works is the closer you are to the main avenue, the more foot traffic you get. And so yep. couldn't pass that up. Got settled in there. Um, she sold the property to a gentleman who has just been absolutely fantastic. He owned the adjacent building. And so by our fifth anniversary, we made a deal, opened up a wall, and uh, expanded into the adjacent building. And so now we've got a facility um, a little under 3,000 square feet. And nice. we've got a halfway decent game space right now that can seat up to about 72 players. Um, we've got a pretty solid retail assortment. Uh, we still do a lot with the vintage video games. We're a little over a million Magic cards and Pokemon cards, a little bit of Yu-Gi-Oh, um, several thousand comic books pretty solid assortment of vintage role-playing games, uh, just kind of a mix of everything. Very so cool. That's been, uh, and being in a small town, the best thing for us has been kind of have our fingers in a little bit of everything. You know, that way when a magic set is kind of questionable and the sales aren't great, you know, we can lean a little heavier on Pokemon or on the used video games or something else like that and just kind of, you know, kind of pull a farmer type of crop rotation. <laughs> so the diversification has helped with a smaller then, population, you're going to spread yeah. the things, spread things yeah. out. So gives us something interesting for everybody. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So how did, uh, how did imp and ion like kind of develop out of the store? How did that happen? Well, um, I had my primary interest throughout school had been computer programming. Uh, and I'd taken a number of courses through uh, the community college here for business in general, and then computer programming specifically. Um, and we were hitting a point where, about that year three, I really wanted to do something where I could push more, more product out there into the world. 
um, mm -hmm. and being able to have something accessible on a regular basis online, but something that I didn't have to worry about juggling multiple lists. And so I started kind of working on my first couple drafts of what I wanted to do to have a some kind of online presence where people could see what I've got, have my stock in store and have the two communicate. Um, did a couple of drafts with a couple of the WordPress based uh, e-commerce systems, a couple of other um, open source systems and whatnot. Never really could get uh, a good a good mix of what I wanted. And then about, oh golly, what would that have been? 2011, 2012? I remember it gets a little bit fuzzy on this point. Um, Crystal Commerce had come onto the scene. And I figured, mm -hmm. okay, you know, why reinvent the wheel? You know, I could do it, but my time's pretty well occupied running the store, running the business, doing all these other things. If somebody else has already done this, why not hop on board? Sure. Uh, so got on board fairly early on. They got me on one of their special gamma rates that spring. Um, and I was with them for about a year and a half. And what I ultimately kind of walked away from a conclusion with was they were a great system for stores whose focus was online first, but they weren't a great outlet for a store whose focus was brick and mortar first. A lot of their tools, a lot of their focus, a lot of their development was focused on pushing those online sales, the TCG player interactions, the eBay interactions, things like that, mm -hmm. and doing some of the things I needed to do in store, you know, that was always kind of getting kicked down the road. And so um, started kind of going back to some of my original notes, started kind of building out a system on my own again, and got to a point where I was pretty comfortable with it, dropped Crystal Commerce, and started using that internally. Um, about what would that have been 2015 then um worked on uh that just kind of on my own uh and so imp is kind of a joke uh inventory management program was kind of the acronym that i used um with some of my programming friends back in high school we had done a little comic strip uh featuring our kind of online personas and my one friend uh his persona was something of an android bent on world domination but his screen name was imp and so that was kind of the other half of the joke for me was, you know, okay, yeah, you know, here's my Android that's not going to attempt to take over the world that helped me run my game store kind of thing. Sure. Um, you know, and so that was all basically just kind of internal for me. That first draft was uh, very crude, very rough, very ugly. Um, just a lot of things that were bolted on to some existing open source packages. Um, so then about November of 2015, there were a lot of issues with, some of the other options in the marketplace, folks were having problems, folks weren't very happy with the options that were out there. And a handful of the other store owners that I know uh, knew what I was working on. And so they started kind of poking me in the ribs and saying, hey, Nate, can you let us in on that? You know, uh, what, what, what can we do about that? And uh, spent that point till about February of 2016, kind of whipping it all into shape. Uh, like I said, that first draft of the program was very much for myself. Uh, my wife was able to use a lot of different functions that I had kind of simplified for non-programmers, um, but it just needed a lot of help and a lot of uh, spit polish to get it cleaned up. So uh, by the 20, uh, by February 2016 there, we got everything lined up, uh, everything working, got a couple of my good friends on the system who knew what they were getting themselves into. Uh, one very proudly remarks that, you know, he breaks all the things. <laughs> so, but uh, the first Perfect tester. Yep, yep. He was very happy to kind of beat on it and see what was going on. You know, and so we made a lot of progress in those early months there. And so that's basically where kind of the ball got rolling. Uh, so by summer of last year, we had a really stable 
program that was a lot easier for other folks to get on board with. And that's kind of where the ball started rolling with picking up some extra stores and doing more community outreach and letting folks know that, hey, you know, we've got another option out here. We've got some more things that we can do. And then uh, a lot of it is brick and mortar oriented first. You know, okay. these are schools that I built that I needed to run my brick and mortar store. And so um, that's just kind of been the overall trend in the development of it is, you know, what do we need to run the brick and mortar store? Okay. And I definitely want to talk about that more specifically, but uh, just wanted to comment on what you said about Crystal Commerce. It's funny because I had a, a, I had a conversation with uh, one of the co-hosts for the show who occasionally comes on for the round table named uh, Wayne Middlestead. And he, he just got into Crystal Commerce and the same complaints that you were kind of, you were saying that like, okay, they were too focused on online, you know, like some of the things they're just kind of not really built for the kind of things that some store owners need. It's the yep. exact same thing that he's encountering now. So like it hasn't really changed that much in the five years since they've yep. started rolling it out. So, so what, how, uh, what makes it that different? What do you mean by like brick and mortar first? What does the uh, ion do? Well, um, okay. Uh, trying to figure out the best way to put this without getting too terribly technical. Yeah. Um, some of the simple things are going to come down to things like reporting. Um, the way Crystal Commerce has some of their expectations, um, their expectations are for certain behaviors, certain things to need to be tracked in certain ways, because you've got sales coming in from TCG Player, from eBay, from Amazon, your, your attached websites, you know, and so brick and mortar then is one of these five channels mm -hmm. that product sales could theoretically be occurring in. And so most of the reporting tries to account for everything. You know, and some of the simple things, I just need to be able to quickly access a couple numbers to balance a cash register at the end of the night. You know, be able to sit down and go, okay, I know that we took in X number of dollars in credit cards, X number of dollars in cash, X number of dollars in store credit, spent Y number of dollars in cash to buy things. And so this is what my till should look like at the end of the night. You know, and so that was one of the things that I had a lot of difficulty with with Crystal Commerce because it doesn't seem like the techs or doesn't seem like the devs have a lot of that on the ground retail experience. Mm. You know, through high school, I worked for a couple of different kind of mom and pop grocery store type operations. And so, uh, you know, I learned very early on different things for kind of that very local accounting type of practice that you don't run into working for the bigger companies or working for like a, a strong online dealer. Yeah. You know, so um, it's a lot of little things like that. Um, it's uh you know, a lot of their tools and a lot of the things that they interact with are dependent on you know, a lot of the online prices and pushing things out and making you competitive in the online marketplace. Mm -hmm. That kind of changes when your focus is brick and mortar. For um, sure. You know, so like a lot of their, a lot of the pricing tools and a lot of their pricing algorithms want to go out onto the web, pull down all of these prices and make sure that you are the best priced on everything, which means you're charging two and three cents for commons and uncommons with automated scripts and whatnot in the system. You know, in the brick and mortar store, what you run into with a lot of customers is they're very grateful for the opportunity to pick things up when they need them. And so they don't mind paying 10 cents or a quarter a piece for the commons and uncommons and things like that if they can walk in, make the request, and you can lay your hands on them within a minute or two minutes of the order. Yeah, if you just deliver the stack, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So being able to just kind of account for different things like that and be able to say, no, you know what? Our local customers are going to behave differently than the online customers. They're going to have different expectations, different tolerances, different things like that. I don't need to give away the farm to satisfy my local group of players. 
You know, so some of the mechanics that I've got built into Ion Retail then, they're built more with that type of consideration in play as opposed to satisfying, you know, a broad online marketplace. Gotcha. Okay. And that makes total sense to me. And I'm, I'm glad to kind of get to the bottom of what makes this different. That's the, <laughs> the thing that uh, I think most people want to know. Like, oh, yeah. So for a game store owner who's listening right now, what's your pitch? Fry and retail. What would you be like? You need to. You need this. This is why. actually one of the things I'm very grateful to uh, be working with Kelly and the rest of the Ion team on because they are actually very polished salespeople, and I have a tendency to get way too technical. Mm. Um, so I, I never really was able to develop a uh, a pitch. It's just been more kind of these ongoing conversations with folks. Um, but in general, for the most part, it is that brick and mortar focus. You know, our tools and everything are focused on brick and mortar users first. Our workflow, our ideas are to make running your store faster and easier. You know, a lot of folks who've uh, switched from Crystal Commerce to Ion or to the predecessor Imp um, have been very happy just kind of with the flow of the point of sale, the ability to process an order for a customer quickly in the store. You know, um, your big box corporations spend a lot of time uh, paying attention to those at register metrics, how quickly they're pushing an order through, how many items per order, that type of thing. We help make that a little bit easier. Um, a big one I know for a lot of folks has been uptime. Uh, there are some concerns with some of the uptime there at Crystal Commerce. Um, and so with what we've done here, a lot of the structure that we've got, it doesn't rely quite the same way on a lot of centralized systems. A lot of things are very individualized for each of the client stores. Things are a little bit more stable in terms of being uh, up and operational more often. Otherwise, you know, uh, it's like I said, I, I ramble quite a bit and it's going to be just kind of a lot of those ongoing conversations. So it's a lot, it's a lot of little bells and whistles. It's a lot of the things like that. Um, I spend a lot of time working with each of the clients. Uh, part of that's the fact that as a small company right now, I've got a lot of ability to do that. You know, mm -hmm. So it's working at a little bit more of a personalized service uh, at the moment, at the very least. Um, but I'm working with the uh, ION team right now to get everybody better acquainted so we can kind of keep this rolling and keep folks happy and keep folks uh well serviced very cool very cool it's a pretty good pitch to me all right <laughs> you know like, it's all about making the person experience the uh, what it's like to be with the thing right so you and i feel like you've conveyed it pretty well that like it makes your life easier that's that's a good pitch that's pretty that's much enough it. for people like well that's what i want so yep. Um, you know, the one caveat that I usually offer for folks, um, one of my early clients expressed this and he meant it very much as a positive and that's definitely how I take it myself, but it's also a good illustration. Uh, it's kind of a comparison between like your, um, your iOS devices and your Android. Your iOS devices, they've got a couple of big buttons, you know, that encapsulates a lot of technical function, but it kind of says, okay, no, you do this to make that happen. You do this to make this other thing happen but you don't get a lot of fine grain control. It's, you know, you're either doing this or you're doing that. Yep. Over here on Ion Retail, it's a little bit more like Android. You've got a lot of bells, you've got a lot of levers, you've got a lot of buttons, you've got a lot of things that you can hook prod set, but it gives you a lot of power, it gives you a lot of function over how you handle things. And then a lot of it too ends up being kind of fire and forget. Once you get through that initial setup and you get everything working the way you like it to, you can largely walk away and the system will run the way you got it out. You don't have to go back and mess with it too often. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like, you know, a bit of a learning curve, but once you got it, you got it. Yep, pretty much. Okay, so one of the other questions that I was, I'm kind of curious about with the system, you mentioned how Crystal Commerce kind of like uh, aggregates prices based off of the, the existing marketplaces, right? That's yep. kind of how they, they do it. Is Does yours do something similar or do you have to set your own? Like what's, how does that work? 
No, um, this is actually one of the things I'm very proud of. Uh, and so this is one of the kind of technical details, but for me, this is one of the really fun ones. Um, we do have our database scraper, our price scrapers that go out and pull down the data um, from a number of different sources. A lot of them are primarily TCG player based, you know, so they're going to be rooted in kind of that TCG player low, mid, high. Um, we also pull in some prices from some other sources like Troll and Toad. Um, we use price charting for the video games, a couple other services like that. Um, working with Ion, one of the things I'm looking forward to is we're kind of cleaning up the data channel that uh, Quiet Speculation has used for a long time. And we're going to make these a little bit more available into the retail as well. But um, for the moment, it's a lot of the marketplaces that folks commonly use. Um, but there is a price update rule system built in. Okay. And so our price updates occur every night. You know, the system pulls in information on a daily basis. Every night, the central database updates. Then all the client databases follow up behind that with all the current pricing at that point. Um, you can build and set a series of rules how you want to handle those incoming prices. And once that's done and once that's set, that runs every night concurrent with those updates. Okay. You know, so it makes it really easy for you to say, all right, because like we were talking about your commons and uncommons. Um, it's very easy to set up your rules so that way your commons and uncommons are always priced at particular tiers, either at a fixed price or at a minimum. You know, so like say, um, simple thing that we do in our store is I round all my prices up to the next quarter. You know, so what that ends up doing for me then is if the market price on you know, these commons are three cents a piece, it does round it up to 25 cents. But at that point then too, I've also got all of my inventory cataloged. It's accessible on the store website. Um, and we can lay our hands on it in a split second if you walk into the store and say, hey, I need three of this really obscure, weird common from Mirage. Mm -hmm. oh, here you go. No wait, no must, no fuss. And that's part of what I was talking about with people not minding that sort of price difference when they can just walk in and get it. Yeah, for sure. So setting some of those floors makes it really easy for us to offer great service and you know that rapid kind of delivery and that get kind of raked over the coals. Uh, I run into a lot of conversations with other stores who try very hard to match those market prices and they realize that they're losing money on transactions because of the time spent, the effort, you know, all of these other things. Mm -hmm. So being able to set those floors is a big deal. Um, you know, but then uh, same thing then you can do it for uh, all the product lines that we've got loaded in. Um, and it's largely fire and forget, you know, because it updates every night. You don't have to worry necessarily about spikes catching you by surprise. That's, that's one of the things that I wanted to, to ask about, because that's a concern I've definitely heard expressed from other store owners with the, uh, you know, like the pro tour happens yep. and then like a, a breakout deck on Friday night or Saturday, like something pops up on the radar, right? And like yep. the cards involved in that deck will just skyrocket, right? And then you'll find yourself bought out before the price updates occur. Yep. So like, yep. how does that, uh, how do you prevent that? How do you assuage someone's fears if that's going to happen? Well, there's, there's a lot of different, again, kind of going back to the levers and the buttons and the options that are mm -hmm. built into the system, there's a lot of different ways that that can be handled. Um, in the you know, almost two years that we've been running the system fairly aggressively, I've really only ever had one catch us by surprise, and that was Sahili Ray back in the um, spoiler run for uh, Aether Revolt. Because they spoiled that Felidar Guardian at like 10 o'clock in the morning, and by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the price had skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. you know, but otherwise, since then, you know, everything kind of happens at just the right pace where you're not getting cleaned out. You know, the price updates are occurring frequently enough, often enough, that it's catching the climb as it happens. 
Okay. Um, other than that, though, I've got a lot of different levers that are kind of built into the system that give you the opportunity to turn off buy price updates in the event that you're expecting a particular crash. You know, so you can set your buy prices at certain points um, with the rules update system and you can turn off the updates. You can turn off the item on the buy list for you. You can do a lot of things like that. So in the event that a band comes out and the price plummets, you're not getting stuck with something. And by the same token, you can basically kind of turn off and manage different things rather quickly to deal with an emergency. Um, but otherwise, the, like I said, the updates happen frequently enough that it catches the climb pretty quickly. Okay. And then as we get a little bit more integrated fully with the uh, with Quiet Speculation and with their data channels, they've got a number of different partners who feed into the system on an almost hourly basis. You know, so okay. get all this streamlined a little bit better the retail accounts will be able to start taking advantage of some of that. And so the updates will come a little bit more quickly. We'll be able to program it so that way it can keep an eye on sudden changes and push those updates earlier. You know, we've got a lot of opportunities to work with the data feeds coming. In. Yeah. It's a, just like my mind was going on that. And I think that think would probably be a pretty good way of, of mitigating that. Just kind of having something that keeps an eye on for a certain amount of gain in a certain time frame. It'd be like, this yep. is a spike occurring, headed off. Right. Yep. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, the other question. I didn't have was uh, do you need to have like a particular organizational system behind the scenes to interact with this? Do you have something that you re recommend? Cause you said that uh, like somebody wants this particular common, right? This random obscure common. You can be like, yeah, it's right here. Here you go. Do you have like a system that works with it? We don't have a, we don't have a recommendation as far as that goes, because what I've learned with everybody is everybody's got their own way of dealing with things. Mm -hmm. Um, so like a lot of the work that I've done, a lot of the work that I did early on in the system as I was working with new stores, everybody kind of had their own way of doing things at that point, even with just a handful of stores. Um, so I built a lot of the system to have as much flexibility as possible in the computer. So half of it's going to come down to what your own internal policies are. Gotcha. So like when we're talking about pulling products and like that out of some of the bins, um, we've got our card room sorted by the sets, you know, so all the cards are sorted into cases by set. They're sorted alphabetically. Um, we've got separators printed, so that way we can track the runs of the cards a little bit more easily and just kind of flip through it and go, okay, here's my A's, here's my B's, okay, here's the one that I want, flip to it, pull it up, bada bing, bada boom, away we go. Um, some of the other stores do a strict alphabetical. You know, so if somebody says, I want a, an Ancestral Visions, you know, you go to the A's, you know, pull it up. Uh, some of the stores do color and alphabetical, you know, so they can pull up the list and go, okay, you know, even if they're not a magic player, you know, the operator can go, okay, you know, so it's an A, it's blue, go to that store's bin for that. Um, you know, so I've tried to make it as flexible as possible so that way we're not dictating to you how to run your business. You can run it how you see fit, and we're just giving you the tools to visualize that faster and easier. Okay, okay. That's good. Sounds good. Just curious if uh, that was a something that you had behind the scenes that like this is the best system to work with us or something yep. like that. Nope. If no, it's flexible uh, enough, that's that's excellent because then yep. that means people don't have to necessarily change anything. Like they don't have to overhaul their whole system to be like, oh, I yep. got this new POS. I got to completely rebuild this back end. No, it's it ends up being fairly flexible. And uh, again, kind of going back to the customer service, it's usually not a problem to. Um, to have customers, new clients come on and say, okay, so this is how I do it. What's the best way to make this happen? Okay, we can walk you through that and kind of make sure that you've got the right order here of operations. Gotcha. That's 
the advantage of having that hands-on service, right? Yep. Yeah, for sure. All right, so how much, so you've been developing this for a while, but yeah. uh, how big of an impact did it have on your brick and mortar location once you like kind of rolled it out and started using it? Fairly significant. Um, I'd spent a lot of time from like that mid-12, I want to say from like mid-12 to mid-13, I was just kind of dinking around with it, you know, and so I had it doing a lot of the basic operations and everything for me, but formally organizing my inventory, we had about a million cards at the time then, and it was just myself. Um, formally organizing the cards was kind of a secondary thing as I was trying to make the code work for the guys on the front end. Um, so I would kind of hand keying things in as different things would come up as new sets would roll out, stuff like that. Um, we had, my wife and I, we had a little one in uh, November of 2014. And so she was actually home with little one a significant amount of the time. And so she started working alongside me far more and started pushing everything into the system. And so once we actually got the full inventory loaded in, Jiminy Cricket, uh, our, our sales for the singles went up dramatically. I want to say we went up about a good 30, 40%, not because we had more valuable product, not because we had the big highly sought after cards, but just because at 2 a.m., our local players could hop on our website, build the deck that they wanted, and put in an order for pickup. And that's been the big thing that I've learned in our operation here that has been the real game changer. It's not necessarily, having the product is important, but having the product accessible. Now, the big thing that drove me to do this in the first place was it drove me nuts to get a customer in who'd say, hey, mate, I'm looking for this, you know, three, a place out of this $3 income. Mm -hmm. Oh, geez, yeah, no, I just took a collection in here yesterday. Oh, it's here. Give me a moment. You know, start thumbing through the cases, start thumbing through the boxes, this, that, the other. Oh, it's here, it's here. You know, and I'm spending five, 10 minutes hunting down one play set. Yep. You know, and I'm wasting the customer's time. I'm wasting my time. I'm not able to service the other customers that have walked in the door behind them. You know, and so I was losing sales by just not being able to provide the focus to that customer in the first place and then even the follow-up customers behind them. You know, so by having the inventory accessible like that and then giving the guys the opportunity to shop it from home, you know, there's a lot of the players who uh, at 2 a.m. they get a brilliant idea for a deck. They're up chewing the fat with their buddies. They're playing video games or doing an all-night magic night at so-and-so's house, whatever it is. And it's like, oh, man, I've got this great idea for this combo. Oh, geez, I need these cards. You know, and everybody laments online sales and losing sales online. And it's not always price that they lose it to. It's just that accessibility. You know, mm -hmm. and what we learned here, having that inventory fully loaded and accessible has been that, given the opportunity, the players will check you out. You know, because they know that they can walk in the next day and grab what, whatever it is that you've got. And so now you've captured a good chunk of that sale. So even if you don't have the hot cards that they want for the deck, they bought all their commons and uncommons from you and frequently at a better margin than what you'd be getting. Yeah, the brick and mortar price is not on the three cents or whatever. Yeah, you know, so uh, that's been the big outcome of that. Just having it accessible has really jumped the single sales just because it's available. The guys can see it. They know you've got it. They can put the order in for it. They can pick it up the next day. You awesome. Know, now you got me really excited. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, one of our stores, uh, you've got stores around the world right now. And uh, we've got a store uh, in New Zealand, uh, My Pop Culture. Um, Tom Godden and his wife Zoe are the owners. And uh, that was Tom's big revelation. He got his system set up, got everything loaded in. And I got a message from him at one point, just a couple weeks. And he says, dude, I don't even have everything in, but 
holy cow, our magic sales are up, you know, 40, 50% just because I know what I've got and my guys know what I've got and they can grab it. (laughs) So just being able to demonstrate it's there. I've got it. This is the price. This is the quantity. Now you're, now your players know where to find it. Very cool. Very cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to leave this for the end, but like how, if somebody wanted to get in on this, somebody wanted to contact you and like, you know, check out ION and maybe use it for their business. What do they have to do? Um, for the most part, that's pretty easy to make the initial point of contact. Um, our suite, ionsuite.com, it's got a lot of the basic information there. Uh, we maintain a Facebook presence as uh, ION Retail. So facebook.com slash ION Retail is also an easy way to make uh, kind of that initial point of contact. Um, you know, the actual sign up goes pretty quick and easy. Um, we've got a couple forms online to check out. So if you've already decided, hey, I want to do this, you know, you can basically just kind of check out, get set up. We're notified. We get you put in the queue for installation. It takes about 15, 20 minutes for the automated system to do all the installation and setup for you. Um, we had, uh, had a gal last night in one of the retail groups. Uh, she was having some difficulties with her current computer setup. She was having some concerns. She was asking a lot of questions in the group. I got tagged in. And so this was probably about 6.30 last night. Mm-hmm. By about 9.30, we had her set up and active, and I spent about an hour or two working with her getting kind of that basic setup started for the day. And so inside of, you know, an evening, you know, she went from having kind of that problematic experience with what she had to having a fairly functional system out of the gate. Awesome. Um, and then beyond that, yeah, it's, uh, we've got a number of kind of the chat channels and whatnot open there for a lot of folks who've got questions. We maintain a technical discussion group for existing clients and uh, interested parties where we've got a demo setup available that folks can check out. They can log into the back end. They've got full access to all the bells, whistles, and features. So nobody has to go in kind of sight unseen. Mm, yeah. You know, you get an opportunity to, you don't get to personally test drive it like in your store necessarily, but you get an full access to an account. It's got all the bells and whistles. It's got all the options. It's got everything that a fully live account does. And you can see how it's going to interact. You can run your normal transactions through it real quickly and see how it handles, see how it responds, see what it does. I'm a big fan of making sure that everybody is very well informed and has an opportunity to know what they're getting into. Yeah, it's always nice taking things for a test drive first. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I usually ask people is kind of uh, along the lines of, you know, like there's a lot of winners and losers in the game business, right? Like you talked mm-hmm. about the store that didn't make it when you first opened up, right? Cause it just yep. kind of, they, for whatever reason, issues. So what do you think separates the, uh, well, separates the winners from the losers? There's, there's a myriad of reasons that are based on pretty much every store in every community. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to having a store owner who knows their community is going to be the big thing. So that's going to be kind of part one. And part two then is going to be a a store owner who is running a business versus a store owner who is in it for, in it for the games. Now um, this is going to sound cold, a little cold hearted for a second. Um, I joke that I am the epitome of the capitalist pig dog, um, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I'm in it for the money. I don't care. Money. No, there's, there's a very good reason to, keep the bottom line first and foremost in your mind as a store owner and to even make awareness of that kind of a part of the community. You know, uh, you get, you get certain small business owners who kind of browbeat their community with the must shop local routine. And it's a noble sentiment, but in and of itself, it's not a reason to actually go to a 
this. You know, you still want to support a business that is doing the things you want them to do. Um, the important thing is, as a store owner, to recognize what is working and what isn't working, and not to chase after certain transactions because that's your your pet interest. You know, so keeping that bottom line, keeping the health of the store in mind, first means just kind of paying attention to what's going on in the community, being aware of what's going on, and building out the things that are actually getting you the support. You know, in, a, in our community here, for example, um, we're a very small community. We've got a lot of people who inherited collections from older siblings, from parents who played years ago themselves and dropped out. So like our F&Ms, they're legacy F&Ms. They're free entry. We don't do a price support behind it besides the F&M promos from Wizards. Mm -hmm. And we get a handful of people who are gung-ho, very adamant. They are modern players. They want a modern tournament with a big payout and everything else like that. But they're a community of about maybe six or seven guys. It's not enough to actually fire an event on its own, let alone one that has lopsided numbers involved. And so you get certain store owners who are, quote-unquote, in it for the community, they're going to bend over backwards to try to help those guys. And on the one hand, that's a noble sentiment, but on the other hand, that's one that's going to hurt them a lot in the long run because they're not going to be getting a return on it. And what ends up happening in those occasions then is they don't have the resources to take care of the other parts of the community. You know, and so in trying to do everything, you end up hurting the people that are actually contributing and actually a part of the community and actually getting something out of what you're offering. You know, so just kind of being aware of the community, what the actual wants and needs are, and being aware of your own bottom line. You know, not letting that... The passion is good. The passion for formats, the passion for games, the passion for product lines is fantastic. You need to be able to channel that reasonably and professionally. And I think that, I think in a lot of occasions, that is probably what makes the bigger differences for a lot of the stores that open versus a lot of the stores that don't. Now, there's always going to be other outside factors. Um, if for whatever reason a shop's landlord has a heart attack and dies, you can't control that. And so if the state, if the estate decides that they're going to just dispose or dispose of all real estate properties and your SOL, there's just not a lot you can do about that. Yeah. Internally, the things that you can control, you know, you can control your attention, your focus, where you're putting your resources. Some good advice, and I definitely have to agree. That's something that I've seen as well. Emotional attachment is something you have to kind of yep. distance yourself from. You can't a little bit of tempering. Yeah. You know, it's, it's great to be excited. And like you said, passionate about the product, but you also have to be thinking of the bigger picture too. And yeah. um, Paul Simer, I don't know if you've ever interacted with him. Uh, not yet. Okay. Uh, he runs a blog called too lazy to fail. And it was actually a fun article like that he had um, a couple weeks ago now, right along this type of thing. You know, it was kind of a letter to the a letter to the clubhouses and a letter to the uh, to the players, to the stores who are in it for the community, quote unquote. And uh, kind of the main thrust of it is, if you want to run a community store and be there for your community, you need to take care of yourself first, because what your community ultimately needs is you. You know, and so that's the big part of that. That you know, your store, your business needs to take care of you, so you can take care of the community, because it doesn't do you any good if you're making so little that you're constantly stressed out taking care of bills or taking care of overhead, that your health is suffering, that you are having to take a, a second or third job to pay your personal bills because the business isn't towing its own weight. You know, so um, it's just 
a great kind of outlook on that and it frames it in, yeah, you can do this for the community. You can be there for the community, but you got to take care of you too. Yep. Bottom line first. Yep. Can't, the business won't stay open if you can't at least make a profit. Yep. Right. All right. So here's a, a fun one. Was there ever a moment you wanted to quit? Oh yeah. On a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> Several moments, actually. Several moments, actually. No, you know, um, and that's just going to be kind of the human thing. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I have always been very appreciative of the Facebook groups online and the Gamma organization and being able to reach out to other store owners. Um, and some of that is just a symptom of small business ownership. You know, if you work for a company, you've got a break room. You know, you can sit down in the break room, grab a donut and a cup of coffee, sit there next to your work buddy and say, holy gee, man, you know, I just got off the phone with this client and what a day, you know, or, you know, if you're in retail, you get off the sales store and it's like, holy cow, I don't think I can deal with that Black Friday sale again. You know, you've got some opportunities to kind of vent and get certain things out of your system, you know, dust yourself off and say, okay, back into the fray. You know, when you're a small business owner, you don't always get that opportunity because it's all kind of on you. You know, if you're not doing it, it's not getting done. So yeah, there's been, there's been days where it's been, you know, I've kind of had enough of this day. I'm through. <laughs> you know, but being able to make contact with other stores, with other folks who are in a similar bubble, at the very least, you get a little bit more of that coworker feel again, where you can vent, you can get it out of your system. Um, you know, I, uh, I've had issues in the past. Um, this is so one of the things I know is fairly unique to the game industry. Um, we end up competing oftentimes against some of our best customers because mm -hmm. they decide that they're going to get involved in the market as a vendor or a dealer. And they're basically conducting their business on your card tables. You know, and so uh, I've had, I've had a couple incidences of that over the last 10 years, one of which was especially bad, you know, just because of the people that were involved and the way things were conducted and the expectations have been laid out ahead of time that no, you know, we really can't be doing this. And that was that was a real rough one for me um but again kind of going back to that support network too i was able to kind of unload have a little bit of a mini, mini meltdown and kind of do the whole that's it i'm done i'm walking away this at the other and uh some of those stores i've made good contact with over the years here who are good friends of mine in the industry now they hopped in and they said well have you thought about this have you thought about that have you looked at it from this other angle have you done that and i got a lot of really good feedback in the thread uh, so Walked you away from the ledge. Yep. 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 You know, but it's, it's extra perspectives, you know, and sometimes when you're on your own, you don't always have some of those extra perspectives. And there are days where it's like, you know, if I'm not making anything and I'm fighting this hard and I'm doing this much and it's not making a difference, flipping burgers for seven bucks an hour actually sound, starts to sound pretty good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's, I think that's something that all entrepreneurs deal with yep. at some point is just that, that moment where you're, you're pushing that rock uphill all day, every day. Right. Yep. Cause I like, guess the, the owner of the business as the, the entrepreneur, there's no, there's no downtime for you really. Like, well, like I said, if it doesn't, if you don't do it, especially in a very small operation, it doesn't get done. You know, and yep. there's not a lot of people who rock that very well. You know, and that kind of goes back to, to some of the successes versus failures. And you get some of the folks yep. who open the store and they think it's going to be playing games all day. Like, you know, nope. and once they get into the thick of it, they're realizing that, oh, geez, you know, this is a lot more than what I expected. Yeah, you, you know? maybe you have to be willing to put in those 12 to 14 hours a day to get this thing off the ground if you wanted yeah. to, if you want to play games again sometime in the, in the near future. Yep. There's a lot of work up front. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, I think that is one of the most uh, 
the, one of the biggest hurdles for a lot of people who are getting into the business is that they don't realize exactly how much work it is. And once they finally get in, they're like, holy cow, I had no idea how difficult this was going to be. And like, they just like, oh, they walk away at that point because it's yep. just too much, right? They get so, overwhelmed. Yep. And that is, that is one of the phenomenal points where a support structure you know, yeah. of some kind is wonderful. You know, and kind of to come back around to Ion Retail as well, one of the big goals that I had when I opened this up to everybody, it's like, okay, if we're going to do this, you know, I'm going to kind of do this for the best of the community. Um, trying to learn from all of my clients in the system, take their best practices and try to adapt them to the code and to the program as much as possible. So that Great way, idea. everybody who gets added into the pool, those best practices get worked in in one shape or form. And now everybody is getting access to more options, more tools to handle their business, handle their store, handle their community. You know, and so in doing that, hopefully we, I can kind of extend that support network. Mm -hmm. you know, so that way uh, new stores have an opportunity to learn from the things that have worked for other stores who've been at it for five, 10, 20 years. Yep. yep. Learning from people who've been there before you is a great idea. It's, that's kind of like the whole point of this podcast. Mm -hmm. Show people the way, show people there is a way yeah. also, you know, no. and it's I not just all dark days ahead. There is actually a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there's also not one, there's not one path forward. Mm -hmm. Run into a lot of stores and they're adamant. You have to be on, you have to be on TCG player. You have to have your prices set at this ratio. You have to do this. You have to do that. And every community, every store is going to be different. Everybody's got different focuses. Everybody's got different needs. And so the more options that are out there, the better, because then you can pick and choose what works for you. And yeah, the support network like crucial, I think. I think you, you need people around you. Like you said, it's like that, that coworker experience, right? You need people on the same path as you, yeah. roughly the same area. Cause like, again, entrepreneurs, usually you're like one in a hundred, maybe less. Yeah. Like you might be the only person you personally know who's doing what you do, right? Maybe yeah. not like game store, but like just doing your own business. You, you're probably not too many people in your family who are like on that path, right? So there's, it's hard to share experiences when you don't have the same life yeah. in that sense, right? So you need people who are, doing the same things as you that you can lean on and talk to and yep. vent to occasionally. Oh, and even the game industry too. This is something that I have chuckled about this for years. Um, <laughs> so a little bit of background on myself. Um, my dad was the director of a local substance abuse agency. Um, okay. So helped with a lot of folks dealing with uh, addiction, uh, re rehabilitation. Uh, they did a lot of outreach in the public schools, things like that. So from a very early age, I kind of had a really good idea of things to avoid. Mm. Um, so when I opened up the shop here, um, I kind of, I, I confused the rest of my town. Uh, like I said, we're a, uh, we're very much a tourist town. We're, uh, we're active the most from like the end of May through the first of September. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a relatively typical tourist town layout. You've got a bunch of restaurants, you've got a bunch of the bars, you've got a bunch of the eateries like that. Uh, and then you've got a uh, number of t-shirt shack type of places, yep. a lot of knickknack shops, um, things like that. Um, we've got, being on Lake Michigan, we've got a lot of great geography around us. And so we've actually got a uh, fairly renowned father-son photographer duo uh, who sell portraits and whatnot of the different sites and locales. Um, you know, a couple of folks who do postcards and things like that as well. Um, so here I am, you know, I'm doing this little shop and they've got no idea what to make of me. You know, the game industry model is so alien to people who haven't been around it. They at first were very much convinced that I was dealing something out the back. <laughs> yeah. You're just a front. Yeah. Those board exactly. games are that, filled that, with cocaine. 
I, I swear that was the that was the uh, that was the conclusion that some of them had reached because I'd sit in on some of the downtown business meetings and things like that. And so, so what exactly is it that that you do? How how is it that you make money? I, I, I see these kids come and go all day long. What, what what's going on? No, but um, you know, so yeah, that's people just don't grok what goes into the game industry. So even if you do have entrepreneurs around you, you know, we're part pawn shop. We're part, uh, we're part bar, you know, we're part social club. We're part um, this, that, the other. Uh, we interact with our community in pretty much every way imaginable as far as most businesses are concerned. So oh, yeah. Game stores are quite the rare Pokemon. We are. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so there's a lot of different things that go into being an entrepreneur that confuse a lot of people. So yeah, having a, having a game store oriented network is especially important. You know, people who actually understand where these problems are going on, you know, so give you the better options that they've run into unique to us. Yeah, for sure. Our, uh, our photographers in town, they're great guys. They're talented artists. They're great retailers. They're not quite going to get certain things that we run into with like the events, the particular events that we organize, you know, the, uh, the bars and the restaurants in town that do the shows and events like that, you know, they're going to get a certain amount of understanding of what we're doing, but not really others. Yeah. And it helps to, you know, also be geeks. Oh, yeah. But, you know, if you're like, oh, like we're still a, a nerdy industry. So if they're right. like super professional clean cut suits, maybe they're not going to get the same kind of, you know, camaraderie as uh, somebody who's into Star Wars magic yeah. and fantasy and all that other good stuff. For sure. Yeah. So build those connections. That's definitely an important one. Another good question. If you had to start over from scratch, would you do anything differently? You know, I'm honestly going to say probably not. And uh, here's why. Here's a quick little segue. Um, I actually had an opportunity and I had run a uh, arcade diner as an offshoot of the game store here. Okay. And so I had basically done a shot from the hip, like I said, you know, uh, opportunity came up. Building was available, um, dirt cheap rent, six-month lease. I had nothing to lose. I just kind of went for it. Didn't do the business plan route. Didn't do a lot of the things that, quote-unquote, traditional businesses do. I just kind of hopped in, and I let it grow. I moved into different things as I needed to, um, not as not a part of any grand plan. Um, what I ran into with the arcade was I tried to do a proper build-out. You know, I did the business plan. I did this. I did that. I went through all the hoops. Um, had a lot of help from my landlord um, on the game store. He actually owned the building that the arcade went into. Uh, he was very keen on the idea. But mm -hmm. what I ran into was that whole structure ended up being a little bit too rigid, at least from the way I find I tend to do things now. You know, having that point of contrast, now I've got a little bit better understanding of what I do. And uh, a lot of what I end up doing is kind of that from the hip type of approach you know um i know my community i know my community well enough you know, i've got a really good feel for how they for kind of the temperature shall we say mm. you know, may not be able to articulate exactly what it is that they want or what's going on but i get a halfway decent feel and i can kind of start steering the business and start pivoting it in one direction or another and kind of keep us on top of the overall local trends keep us on top of the the formats and the lines and the games and things like that um if I started over and I tried to do anything uh, more rigid or more structured or more traditional in terms of opening a business, um, I would probably run into a lot of issues. I'd probably paint myself into corners and not be able to get out. And I've been very happy with the fact that 
we're big enough that we can do a lot of fun things, but I'm nimble enough that we can still kind of pivot as we need to. So, no, I'd pretty much do it the same way. <laughs> okay. That's a good answer. And it's good to know that uh, you've kind of got a flexible approach to running a business, right? You know, you haven't, you didn't follow the traditional path that some people necessarily like you have to do it this way. Right. Yep. Like, and that means that other people could also potentially follow that path because it's worked for you. So maybe it'll yep. work for them. You know, it's not, yep. Oh, and you know, that's part of what's allowed me to do like the point of sale. Now, um, if I were in too much of a rigid structure or there were too much built into depending on A, B, or C, I wouldn't have necessarily had the freedom or the flexibility to say, no, this is the tool that I need now and I need, I need to be the one to build it. Now, I would have had to rely on seeking out external entities and mm-hmm. trying to make do. So being flexible enough to say, okay, you know, I need this tool, so I'm going to build it. You know, is partly what gave rise to being able to do Ion Retail in the first place. Very cool. So what is the future for Nate Peterson look like? <laughs> it's all over the map. And as, as kind of a part of that flexible thing, I'm just kind of shrugging and going where the wind will take me. Um, you know, we've got Ion Retail now officially launched, branded, and out the door. And we are getting great reception and great response to it. Um, I've got a lot of great things in the pipeline for that that I'm really excited about that'll make running both backstage and the client stores significantly easier. Um, you know, keep plugging away here at the local game store at backstage. Um, I would love to get kind of back into that publishing. You know, I have a lot of fun doing things like that. Um, time has not allowed that very well these days, but, uh, no, just kind of keep rolling with it and keep doing what needs to be done. Go with the flow. Yep. Pretty much. Now, and then in the off time, you know, uh, I've got a two and a half year old daughter now who is just absolutely fantastic. She is bright. She is sharp. Uh, her and I got my old Legos out the other day and uh, she was playing with the knights and the ghosts and the pizza set up and the knights fought the ghost and defeated the ghost and went out for pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to many more of those days in the future too. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are pretty awesome. Oh yeah. So it's a good age at that point too. Oh yeah. Starting to still starting to tell stories, getting into crazy situations. That sounds oh, like a lot of fun. Oh, <laughs> All right, so let's wrap up with a question that I ask pretty much everybody on the show. Very good. Everyone gives, everyone gives me a different answer, and it's probably one of the better questions. It's a very personal thing, but what does success look like to you? You know, I'm a, as I think I've demonstrated here so far, I'm a pretty easygoing, fairly laid back guy. Um, for myself, it's basically being able to take care of my family and being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I am a workaholic, so that means that it's a little bit more work than what other people might have necessarily in their roster. But no, you know, being able to being able to just be free to do what I want to do when I want to do it, being able to know that my family is taken care of, you know, those are the important things in my world. You know, and being able to be happy while I'm doing it uh, is fantastic. You know, I've spent, thankfully, I've actually spent only a handful of years working corporate. I'm 33, so I opened backstage at 23. I'd spent about three, four years, you know, independent publishing while I was working, you know, uh, kind of the run of the mill retail jobs, you know, so at 33, I've been in the game industry now for 13, 14 years, you know, being able to meet great people, do great things, have great fun. And each year here, it gets easier to do that. And, you know, like I said, take care of the family, take care of the things that need to be taken care of. Awesome. Sounds like you've got success already. I'm pretty happy myself. Just looking forward to uh, making it a little bit bigger and a little bit better. Awesome. Onwards and upwards. Yep. All right. Any closing thoughts for the listeners? Anything you want to let them know? 
not necessarily. I think I've rambled quite a bit throughout the course of this. <laughs> no, okay, we definitely gave him a lot to think about. So, oh, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Um, you know, no, just you know, kind of think everything through. You know, like I said, um, the best stores that I know, the ones that are the most successful, are the ones who manage to blend that passion and that practicality. You know, take care of yourself, take care of your business. You'll have the energy, you'll have the enthusiasm, you'll have the ability to take care of your community. There's, there's a certain merit in putting yourself first so that way you can be there to take care of the community and take care of the people who are important to you. Okay, do you want to plug your uh, Ion Retail one more time so people can take a look? And... I can do that, yeah. No, uh, no for more information on uh, Ion Retail and Ion Suite, you can hit us up online, uh, ionsuite.com or facebook.com slash ionretail. Um, We've got a great team who are more than happy to help out and answer questions. I'm usually just a uh, direct message away through one of the services there. Um, more than happy to help you out, answer questions, and get you taken care of. Awesome. Well, thanks, Nate, for coming on the show and sharing your story and telling us all about Ion Retail. I think it was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. I think the listeners will really enjoy it. So, I hope so. thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Go cool, cool. We will see you guys later. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of the Metaverse Podcast. I want to thank Nate Peterson for coming on the show and sharing his time with us. If you want to try out Ion Retail for your shop and see what it can do for your business, head over to ionsuite.com and give Nate a shout. I'm sure he would be glad to help you out. If you want to learn more about running a successful game store, head over to maniversaga.com and become an Early Bird Premium Member. A premium membership is where you'll be able to find in-depth courses, guides, and templates for specific strategies for growing your game business. It's currently a work in progress, but if you are serious about growing your game store, it would be great to have you as an Early Bird Premium Member. My goal is for the premium membership to be your virtual GTS, a treasure trove of resources, shortcuts, and strategies that you can access from anywhere with an internet connection. I also want to thank you for being a listener to the Maniverse Podcast. I'm Tom Traplin, and it's been a pleasure being your host today. Remember, stay strong, play the game, and I'll talk to you next time.